0: Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. A few weeks ago, I had an interesting experience when I called an Uber to get from the auto mechanic to the church one morning. My driver came in a late model Cadillac Escalade, and she was evidently a... 50-something empty nester mom who was um, financially well-established. And uh, so, we got to talking about, you know, I mean, the the obtuse question that I sort of indirectly asked is, why are you driving Uber? And And she explained that her kids had been her life for the last many years, and now having grown and left the house, she was kind of filling the void. And she said, most of who I drive are people who are their age, you know, that live here in Denver, and this is the way they get around. And so I get glimpses into my kids' lives and what they're probably doing. And uh, I know, it was a little sad. I was like, oh how sweet. And then she said, and it's kind of play money for me to, you know, redecorate the living room or whatever. I said, well, that's great. And then I thought about growing up in the Northeast in the 80s and 90s in major cities that are so heavily dependent, or at least were at the time, on the taxi industry. You know, you can't be in New York longer than three days and not take a taxi. And I, it, it, it involuntarily progressed, this chain of thought, to how very vastly, like opposite side of the transportation industry galaxy different, my Uber driver was from every taxi driver I had ever ridden with. I know that's an obvious and sort of delicate statement, but the fact is it pointed to a phenomenon that has characterized the 21st century thus far. Listen to this from The Economist magazine. The idea of disruptive innovation is the most influential business idea of the 21st century. These so-called disruptors labeled in the late 90s by an economist studying culture have reshaped our economic, commercial, but also social landscape at an alarmingly rapid rate. The author continues to be a disruptor is to create a product, service, or way of doing things which displaces the existing market leaders and eventually replaces them at the helm of the sector. Disruptors are generally entrepreneurs, outsiders, and idealists rather than industry insiders or market specialists. And you see this in the business world where Uber has displaced the taxis of yellow cab as the top of the transportation industry. Airbnb has knocked the lodging industry on its side. And these disruptors are reshaping the way we experience life in urban 21st century at an increasingly alarming rate. We don't even talk in Economic analysis is much about economic velocity. We talk about economic acceleration, the rate of velocities change. Now, that's not just to do with the money, but the way that culture is being reformed. Like, go away for a year, and you scarcely recognize your community. And these disruptors, it seems, are at the helm. Outsiders, entrepreneurs, individualists, idealists, who are turning established industries on their head. And this idea was rattling in my mind as I took to studying the next three chapters in the book of Acts that we've been studying through for the last couple of years. We're looking at Paul's second missionary journey, and it tells us, a little later we'll get to this passage, in Acts 17, that the leaders of society, industry, and religion dragged... Some believers before the city authorities shouting, These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. The first century believers, outsiders, idealists, entrepreneurs were disrupting the established norm. And these disruptors went on to change the world. Our title this morning, The Ones Who Turned the World Upside Down. We're in Acts chapter 16. To start, the Word of God teaches Paul went first to Derby and then to the city of Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium, so Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left. For everyone knew that his father was a Greek. Then they went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem." So the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger. The context as we begin this series is a turning point in first century church history. Paul had completed his first missionary journey, which we looked at back in the fall, that largely blazed the trail, established the first churches outside of Palestine, and saw him And the first century church's earliest leaders figuring out what it means to share life in community around Jesus Christ. Well, they had returned for a respite and have been in Antioch for a couple of years. That was a sort of forward home base, Jerusalem being the mothership, for the fledgling church. And now they set out here at the start of 16 to take the gospel beyond the frontiers that they had seen. And so their missionary journey number two consists of going back to the churches that were pioneered in missionary journey number one and encouraging them, and then going beyond. They crossed over into Europe and brought the gospel to that continent for the first time. A decision that had vast implications in shaping the future of the world order, religious, economic, geopolitical, and beyond. And so this is Paul at his most dedicated, laser-focused, dialed in, energy on a ten, and fruitful like crazy everywhere they go. The churches grew larger. Churches that went on to shape the world. While at first read, verses 1 through 5 are scarcely more than a contextual preamble to tell you what was happening... I think there's something important that we have to pause and take note of, something that goes on to frame the chapters ahead and give entrance to our study of the next six weeks. In verse 3, the Bible teaches that in deference to the Jews of the area, Paul arranged for Timothy to be circumcised. For he knew, rather for everyone there knew that Timothy's father was a Greek, which means that Timothy wouldn't have been circumcised as an infant. And then, after having done that, they went on from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. What were the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem? You know, to get to the frontier... In Europe, they had, to back, they had to backtrack through the places they had established because it was the first missionary journey was a sort of out-and-back trek, so they had to cross that terrain again. And in so doing, they wanted to upgrade the software, update to the newest version of what the Holy Spirit was establishing as the norm for the churches. And so that which was a feature point of their two- or three-year respite, the so-called Jerusalem Council informed the way these churches were to proceed. So they didn't just go back and have a potluck. They told them, here's what was decided at the Jerusalem Council. That's the subject of Acts chapter 15, which we looked at last year, but we'll refresh it in a moment. In short, the Jerusalem Council came about because as these churches established, there were some questions as to what it means to be Christians together. And this was their first Their first attempt at establishing orthodoxy, right? Like, here's the tie that binds. Here's what it means to be a Christian church. Do you know what the headline topic at the Jerusalem Council was? Let's read. Some of you do know. Acts 15, we'll go back in order to go forward. In verse 1, To refresh you, it says, while Paul and Barnabas were there at Antioch, some men from Judea, which is sort of Jewish headquarters, arrived and began to teach these brand new Christians, unless you are circumcised, as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Wow. That's big. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them. Note it. They argued vehemently in their disagreement, and thankfully so. They were right. Finally, at a deadlock, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to talk with the apostles and elders about this question. And so the Jerusalem Council emerged. They deliberated on a variety of doctrinal questions, but the the main event, the top of the card, was this question of circumcision. And their decision. For the sake of time, I'll just summarize it and leave you to read that this week on your own. Their decision was no. We're going to ask just a very few basic common observances, but we're not going to ask new believers to observe this Jewish tradition. That was the old covenant. This is the new covenant. Well, that didn't go down well with some, But Paul was passionately for that decision. In fact, you could say he was the driving force behind it. And still, it's interesting to me that Paul made Timothy get circumcised. Like, we can't really just cruise past that as intellectually honest students of the Bible. The Jerusalem Council happened, and it happened at the insistence of Paul, who vehemently opposed this notion. He says that... After coming back from the Jerusalem council and resting up, he circumcised Timothy. And then after Timothy healed up, I guess they hit the road to go to these new churches and tell them they didn't need to get circumcised. Does anyone else see anything off in that? So what's going on here? Am I exposing a Bible contradiction In one read of scripture, there is a cynical set of glasses that we look through, and normally if we wear those, we have the the Bible contradiction buzzer close at hand, you know? We read something, we're like, hey, Bible contradiction, and then we throw the whole thing out because of it. Or we can jump on the pendulum and swing all the way over here and do what we preachers love to do, and do theological gymnastics to explain it away, and kind of do like the Jedi mind trick, like these are not the droids you're looking for. This passage does not say what it says. Well, yes, it does. So what are we supposed to do with that? I say, why don't we live in that tension for a moment and ask the Holy Spirit, why might you have put the Jerusalem Council in 15, and then Paul seeming to step in his mess right here at the start of 16? I think what could be happening is simply put, a character flaw is being exposed just in the moment that Paul hit it big. As Paul's ministry shifts into high gear, his brokenness, it seems, is on full display. Easy to knock him, but have you ever experienced that? Your voice gets louder your influence bigger you're promoted more people are lo- looking to you for leadership and all of a sudden the same you that was accepted here is questioned there more eyes on you. I remember going from being an associate at an established, large, influential church for 10 years to being the senior pastor of a church that met in my basement, and all of a sudden, as the boss of a couple people and the senior pastor of just a handful more, I had lasers targeted at me. And I realized, disquietingly, that I was the same guy after the promotion that I was before. It's just that the stakes were higher. Well, it seems that this phenomenon caught up to Paul. To really get a handle on what's going on, I want us to look at a corresponding passage. We're going to do this as a way of study, both because it illuminates what's happening in Acts and because I think it models a healthy way of studying Scripture, we're going to look at what's happening through the lens of Acts, which is a history book. Its primary aim is to record events, not to say that these events are didactic or, or authoritative, like you shouldn't go and do necessarily what Paul did here. So you can be relieved of the pressure that I'm undermining the authority of Scripture. And then we're going to look at a cross angle from the epistles that tell the story or at least provide primary source material of what was happening as this story was going down. So this morning, we're gonna look at the letter called Galatians. It says in chapter five, I'm gonna read highlights and leave you to read the whole thing on your own for the sake of time. Mark my words, Paul writes. Very officious. I, Paul, Tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Verse 6 For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, it has no value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself in love. Down in verse 10, he continues, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. And in verse 12, the cherry on top, as for those agitators, the ones who are trying to make you get circumcised as a new Christian... I wish they would go all the way and cut it off. It's what he says. It's uncomfortable to talk about in polite society. How do you really feel, Paul? It's kind of what you want to ask. What's even more astounding is that in this letter... Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. Now, Galatia is a little different from, like, the letter of Ephesians or Philippians. Those are letters to the church in the cities of Ephesus and Philippi. But Galatia is not a city. Galatia is a province, one of the cities of which is Lystra. That's Timothy's hometown. So Paul's writing this to Timothy's Jewish mom, uncles, and rabbis, who all want this thing to be done, because it's a big deal to them, and rightly so. This is the covenant Abraham, Moses, their whole deal. Paul doubles down in Galatians. He says, exposing Peter for the very same thing he's doing. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. For what he did was very wrong. And I chuckle at this, not because Paul's wrong in saying it, but because Paul's doing the same thing. When he first arrived, Peter ate with Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. Paul's calling Peter out. He tells him that he went down there and confronted Peter, and now he's exposing Peter to the entire church of Galatia. That's how big of a deal this seems to have been to Paul. Peter, the one on whom the church was built like a rock, he was Jesus' companion. And Paul says, he was very wrong. I confronted him, and here's why he was wrong. Because he was being pressured. He was kowtowing to that pressure. He was falling into the fear of man in the face of those who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. It's funny, Paul exposed Peter big time, and now the Holy Spirit did to him exactly what he did to his brother. There's no way to gloss over this or sugarcoat it. He was just wrong. He was just wrong. He was great, except where he wasn't. His gifts had started to unfurl and flourish and bear fantastic fruit. He was turning the world upside down, Except where he wasn't. He was hitting it, except where he was still missing it. And some areas of seeming under formation in his character were being brought to the surface. The bottom line is Paul got caught in hypocrisy, plain and simple. And I would suggest, friends, that that should give us hope. And let me explain why. Why? Paul was a human, broken, malformed, under-aware, incomplete. He was, in short, us. And God used him still, used him to turn the world upside down. Later on, as Paul matured, and reflected on these things, I would imagine. He wrote to the Corinthians three times. Three times I begged the Lord to take away this weakness of mine. We don't know if it was this one or something else. But each time he said, Jesus talking, my grace is all you need. My power, my power works best in weakness. So now Paul writes, I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. When we are weak, then we are strong. And this can feel unsettling, criticizing the Apostle Paul. There are church traditions that thrived for centuries where you would never dare preach this sermon. I'd probably be burned or tied to an anthill or something like that. Because the Apostle Paul is a saint. Cathedrals are named after him. He pioneered the Christian world. How could you say this about him? Paul says it about himself. He says, I will glory, I will boast in my weaknesses. I don't think Paul's in heaven going, guys, seriously, do you have to highlight this? The Holy Spirit highlighted it by putting chapter 16 right after chapter 15. We can't not see it. You can't not ask the question, what is this about? The issue at hand as we start into this important passage of Scripture is who is this for? That's the question. Who are these teachings for? You and I have been placed here in post-Christian Denver in the 21st century for such a time as this. We've been asked to be missionaries to this city to this lost generation. We've been put here to turn the world upside down. And the question is who is this for? Whom does it extend to? I think it's easy to hear a series charging us up in our mission. You know, we talked last week about how being Denver United boils down to three simple things. Living with Jesus, living in family, and living on mission. And so we're going to look over the next six weeks at texts that will show us practically what it can look like for us to engage a post-Christian city and live on mission. The question that this asks us up front is, who is it for? Because see, I think it's easy, I think it's common to sit in the seats and listen to these passages and think, yeah, that's great. You all go get them. But that can't be for me because I know me. I know my brokenness. I know the way I tripped on my tail last week. I know what is deep and unformed in me. And I know there's, a prob- there's probably a lot more swimming around in the depths of my soul that I haven't even yet faced. So this is for someone else. This is for the people who are farther along. This is for the elites. So go get them, guys. I think this passage asserts a few things that are important for us to acknowledge as we start into this journey together. First, nothing, I think, smokes out our weaknesses like saying yes to Jesus. Have you noticed that? Leadership. you new group leaders are probably already starting to feel it. Influence, voice, mattering. It all holds a mirror up to our souls and forces us to look. So the question it begs is, why on earth do we want that? Who's a glutton for that kind of punishment? But friends, I think this is how we mature. This is the gospel part and parcel. This is the way it works with Jesus. We come to him and try to hang on to our lives and keep this manicured visage of ourselves that we try carefully to craft and present to the world around us and have to have that be the final say. We're gonna lose our life. It's gonna slip right through our fingers. But if we willingly lose it, if we die to ourselves, if we say, Jesus, Increasingly as I come to know you and see God in your image, I see that made in your image I fall so vastly short. I see myself as broken, sinful, weak, and in so much need. And so I lose my life for you. And steadily, progressively, not transactionally, not a one-time deal. Here you go, God, you got my life. Now I get the goods. But Little by little, bit by bit, over the long haul, we lose our life, we find it. Jesus reveals us to ourselves and then remakes us in his image, restores our souls. This is the glory of the gospel. This is what we're made for, and this is where the only true and lasting fulfillment will be found. It's hard. It's hard to have our weaknesses illuminated, our brokenness brought to the surface. But the good news is not only will God's work in us continue when we choose to say yes, to opt in, to live on mission, but it actually deepens as we allow his work through us to grow. Hear this, God's work in us Deepens, increases as we allow his work through us to grow. It only makes sense, doesn't it, that we'd start seeing ourselves more clearly as we embrace the fullness of our identity in Christ. As we align with his purpose, with our true design, We experience more of his power to heal, to grow. I love in Philippians 3 how Paul writes this. He gives them an impassioned and important doctrine and then concludes his discourse by saying, let all who are spiritually mature agree on the things I just told you. But even if you disagree on some point, you're out of the club. You're on the bench until you get that figured out. So that's not what he said. He said, even if on this or any point you disagree, I believe God will make that plain to you in his time along the way. God seems to work this way through progressive revelation, and progressive maturity. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is gonna lead you into all truth. And I love how in chapter one of this book, Philippians, Paul says, as a sort of thesis for the whole work, I've become convinced of this, that he who began this good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion. Not tomorrow or next week maybe, but even unto the day that we meet Jesus face to face. It's a progressive work. God is pleased to do it that way. It is not as though he could not have given the mission to more perfected beings. He has legions of angels at his disposal. There's the cherubim and seraphim with all the eyes and the elders that perpetually bow before the throne that Revelation whispers of. He could have found other people to do the job. It's not like he had to make do with us. God gets more glory in filling all things everywhere with Jesus through beings that are dependent on him and otherwise inferior and inadequate. And then by simply snapping his fingers and doing it himself. And thus, he demonstrates his love. He demonstrates his work of redemption, his desire to restore and ennoble and empower. Friends, I think this tells us that we're allowed to be there. You're allowed to be where you are in the place of growing, in the place of healing, in the place of self-discovery. You're allowed to be where you are and still get put in the game. This is such a counterintuitive thought for our culture. We tend to think more like this. Do any of you follow Denver sports? You might know Bol Bowl, you know, the son of famous Minute Bowl, who was like a seven-foot, six-inch sinner super skinny, but a defensive animal. Well, Bol Bol was like 7'3 or 7'4, but he's a freak of nature because he can shoot the three and he can dribble and handle the ball. And so he was a sensation in high school, in the AAU world, and and then at Oregon. Well, the Nuggets drafted him, but all of the basketball heads that write about this stuff incessantly they all said from before this season began, you're not going to see Bol this year. You may not see him next year. You're not gonna see him anytime soon. Why? Because he's a long-term developmental project. We gotta get some muscle on his frame or he's gonna get snapped in half by these grown men who play in the low post. Man, we see his skills. His potential is undeniable, but not for a long time is he going to be ready to take the court. I think a lot of of us see ourselves that way. It's the way our culture presents it. We're like long-term developmental projects. So you hear this message, you hear this series, and you're told, hey, we're called to live on mission. We're called to turn the world upside down in our generation. And we're like, yeah, that's great. We don't have any notion that we would be a part of that. Not anytime soon. Maybe three, four years down the road, we'd be ready. But the problem is that day never comes because we're never bulky enough to bang in the low post with the likes of this world. It's Christ in you that's always been the hope of glory, not you yourself. You don't have enough goods, nor will you ever be able to. And so it takes the pressure off. Do you see it? And so starting here, what Jesus is saying is, will you see yourself in this story? Will you opt in? Jesus is redeeming the city of Denver. There are fewer people following him here than in every place in the world we send missionaries. We are living in a dry and barren land. Yet Jesus is not through with Denver evidence you. Right here on Broadway, the gateway to downtown, in the heart of this city, Jesus has put a community of thriving believers, some young, some deeply mature, growing together, an oddball array, so diverse as to look like the city itself. And Jesus has made clear in the book of Romans that creation groans, They're groaning in eager expectation. That hole gets more noticeable, more difficult to explain away. The older they get and so they try to fill it with all the best of what the world has to offer and they get more wealthy, they get more successful, they put more stuff in there and all it does is deepen the hole. They're groaning. You know what they're groaning for? In eager expectation of the daughters and sons of God to be revealed. And we are told and we've come to think so sensitively about the gospel that we're like, well, i got to manicure it six ways in order for them to even find it relevant. The gospel is good news. It's good news in this generation and in every generation. The gospel is hope. It is refreshing. Maybe you don't go with tracts that look like $100 bills and preach the four spiritual laws in the break room at your office. But you know what? They're groaning all the same. They're groaning for authentic hope. They're wondering if their lives count for anything. They think they were created for a purpose in spite of everything the post Christian narrative has told them. They're waiting for the gospel. And God's aim was that they receive it through our lives. The gospel lived out a tapestry woven into every industry, every neighborhood, every sphere of influence. And so the last ditch effort of our enemy is to say, yeah, that's true, but not yet, not for you. Because if they, not them, they don't care. They know you're a sinner because they live inside them. But if they, the people around you in your row, if they knew what happened last night, if they knew that you're still struggling to get consistent victory in this one area while reading through the Bible in a year, if they knew what went on in your thought life on your dark days while leading a small group, they would put you out of town on a rail. And so the Lord Jesus gives us the guy after whom more cathedrals and expensive edifices are named than any other save for Jesus himself. And he shows us that guy with his pants down. That guy, starting into his biggest contribution, showed up for the broken human that he is. And that should give us hope. This story isn't about Paul. It's about you. You were made for this. You are made to be a missionary to this city. Not to do a mission, not to check a block or participate in something to substantiate your faith or make you feel good or assuage your modern progressive guilt. To live on mission. You are made for this. You were put here in Denver in the 21st century for such a time as this. And so where normally we get to this point and we give you a simple charge practical application. Here's how to put this message into practice tomorrow morning when you go back to your daily life. I think the charge today is simple. This is like preseason. This is the opt-in. The charge is simple. See yourself in the story. Believe that it's about you. You're the ones who are turning the world upside down and exposing its false and tawdry propositions as lifeless and enslaving. You're the ones filling all things everywhere with the Lord Jesus Christ, his love, his mercy, and his grace. And you're a living example of the gospel. And so the charge is simple. Opt in. We're going to continue studying through this. Pastor George is going to teach next week. It's going to be amazing. But in order for you to be able to receive it for you and not for the person three seats down in your row, you gotta make that choice and embrace that Jesus isn't just willing, he's eager to work through you now, even while he's working in you. And the kingdom will prosper in this way. We're gonna look over the next five weeks at some different ways of engaging our post-Christian city, our post-Christian generation. Being a disciple of Jesus means making disciples. It means living on mission. And this is discipleship. It's not a transaction or an achievement. It's a journey. It's a long, meandering road of growing and brokenness and being formed and being healed and being remade as Jesus is remaking our neighbors and our culture and our world through us. This is discipleship. It's a journey. And I invite you to jump on it with us. Would you stand with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for the truth and power and hope that are in your word. Lord, would you help us to receive it in our hearts, to know this love that surpasses knowledge and to believe that this is about us. Would you give my friends this grace, Lord? To accept that you delight in working in us as you work through us. And would you use this family of believers to turn the world upside down? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, love you all. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com.